come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. Sponsored by the OVH Cloud Startup Program. This is Talk Tank, the official LSE Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Sia, and I will be your host for today. Welcome to our Bits and Bytes series, where we are focusing on individuals at the forefront of technological innovation. Grant Canary is founder and CEO of DroneSeed and its subsidiary, Silverseed. DroneSeed is the largest vertically integrated reforestation startup on the West Coast, has recently raised $36 million in its Series A, and is a Techstars and Elemental Accelerator alumnus company. Grant has focused his entire career on sustainability, working at Vestas in China, the US and Denmark, and for the US Green Building Council. He spent close to a decade founding and building a prior green company in Bogota, Colombia, which was later acquired. Grant, it's, it's very nice that you're here. I'm excited to have this conversation. I'll do a little bit of an intro for our listeners who are primarily uh, entrepreneurs focused and social science focused. Now, everyone listening to this is going to be a bit of a lay person. But at the same time, let's say we are reasonably engaged and clever and we like to learn more. Um, students at ELSE love to have an impact. Um, and there's way more focus on climate change now. I've surveyed the dissertations coming out of PhDs in, in the psychology department, and there's more and more focus on, on climate change. And so this is an interesting conversation. Now, before we start, I looked at a couple of stat stats. In the UK, people might not be that aware of wildfires and the impact of wildfires and, and where that fits into the um, CO2 emission agenda. Um, but for people who are listening, if we look at the numbers in the UK, the number of wildfires, they are increasing. Um, there are estimates where wildfires are going to go from, or let's put it this way, uh, hot days that are serious enough for wildfires are estimated to go from 20 a year today to 111 by 2080. So the issue is predicted to be worse. If you're wondering where wildfires are happening, they're, you know, they're kind of in the Peak District, Derbyshire and Northumberland. So if you live in London, you're kind of safe, but it is a problem. Um, you know, I was very curious about the extent of wildfires in the US, which is completely different than it is in the UK. You had a fire uh, in 2018, the campfire in California. And just as a little bit of a metric for everyone, they said within a minute, an area the size of 80 football fields burned down. And that's that's massive. You can't. Well, as some somebody was saying in a documentary, you can't run away from that. That's it. Once you're in there, you you that you're done. Um, Grant, have you have you ever been close to a wildfire? Oh, I'm heck of a practice not to be. Uh, we we come in very much afterwards. We've had crews uh, for seed collection and for uh, that have been close by uh, because seed is a very scarce and precious resource. Um, and we've been we've been able to move, keep them at a safe distance and then move crews uh, for that time. But um, you're absolutely right that uh, the as far as wildfires increasing in size and severity, we can speak to the the why of that. But then the other important point is the is, is one just the 
press and how that narrative works and then two um why that's why the increase in fires is occurring and what the what's the what's the difference between now and 10 years ago 20 years ago um as far as natural regeneration as far as size and severity those are the kind of the three things that are really important there and uh, i have seen you speak about a little bit some of the stats i mean the severity is increasing the frequency is increasing uh, talk us through a couple of numbers give, give people a, an understanding of the scale of the problem yeah, so so in the US, uh, it, to make sure we're using really solid data and not cherry picking, I mean, look, look we look at a 10-year rolling average from National Interagency Fire Center, uh, government agency in the US. And it used to be from like the 80s to the 90s, the 10-year average was about 2 million acres would burn. Um, fast forward to today, it's around 7 million acres. That difference, about 5 million acres, is about the size of New Jersey. And um, that is a, a very big problem. Uh, the why of why that's happening is that with climate change, there is a much longer summer period. It's no longer condensed to a you know, tight two to three months. It's starting to expand, expand, expand. So if you think about starting a, a fire, uh, whether it's in your stove or whether it's in uh, a campfire, if, it's, if you have wet wood, it's really hard to get going. And if you have really dry wood, especially stuff that's come out of a kiln, it's really easy to get going or significantly easier. And so we just sort of think of like, well, if summer is all of a sudden starting to expand from three months to five to six or that drying season, maybe I'll call it summer, but that, that how those higher temperatures, less water, more drought, um, you're drying out all that wood. So it's more likely to burn hotter uh, with more severity. And what that does to natural regeneration is that for temperate conifers, uh, you know, cone-based trees, things that people would recognize from, from Christmas tree lots and things, um, what happens is, is a low severity fire goes through and that's part of the natural ecosystem. Um, it used to be forest burn, forest regrows. Um, but what a high severity fire does is it goes through, instead of just burning the top of the soil where seeds are stored, kind of like a creme brulee, but it burns three inches or more down into the soil and burns all the, that seed supply. So natural regeneration isn't occurring at the same rate. Similarly, the other place that seeds are stored is at the top of trees. And so it used to be a low severity fire would go through and just kind of burn the bushy middle bits, but the top would be all green and have a bunch of cones that could then rain seed down after the fire. Well, with higher severity fires, it burns all the way up to the top and it torches the uh, cones up there as well. And so they looks more like a, a Looney Tunes tree, uh, kind of or a Dr. Seuss tree with no leaves all burned. And, um, and so that's kind of what results out of that. So net result is it used to be nine times out of 10, forest burns, forest regrows. Now we're starting to see that change and it's depending upon trees, depending upon ecosystems, you know, six times out of 10, forest burns, forest regrows, four times out of 10. And as that drop occurs more and more, we get into a feedback loop, which is where my master's degree is in which is basically to say a snowball. And um, you, you end up with more and more fires, higher severity, removing the seed, and then nature doesn't do a vacuum. So you're more likely to see invasive or um, invasive species come in and they're not adjusted to the ecosystem. So they're more likely to dry out. And so they're great tinder for the next fire which then burns any bits that weren't burnt. So we're sort of in a very, very big uh, cycle of sort of seeing additional burning. And drone seed has decided to try to help with this problem in a very particular way. Now, I could talk the listeners a little bit through it, but I'll let you actually do that. So, so talk us through it. How does drone seed do? Yeah, so we're a one-stop shop for reforestation. And uh, there's 
uh, basic scarcity at every step of the supply chain. And that has nothing to do with uh, COVID. It has nothing to do with global global supply. It's, it's very much a climate change story. Um, the first step, if you're a land manager, is that, um, and by the way, there's two companies here, Drone Seed and Silva Seed. Um, so if you're a land manager and we work with timber companies, we work with tribal nations, uh, some of the largest carbon offset generators. We work with uh, state and federal agencies, small family forests and nonprofits like the Nature Conservancy. So these are, these are land managers. You have, your, you have a fire. What's your first step? Well, to reforest, your first step is where do I have seed? And seed is scarce right now. Um, and, it, and it has been for a, a, a good bit of time because what we've talked about regarding the size and severity of fires. So um, what we've done at Silva Seed, uh, one of the two businesses, is we've expanded to become the largest private seed bank in the we uh, west of Colorado. So just picture sort of the western half of the United States. Um, the next step is great. I've got the seed. Do I have a place to grow it, the nursery? And we, again, it, it's, there's scarcity. There's a paper in the journal Frontiers. Uh, estimates are that we need to double production capacity. There's twice the demand for seedlings than we have nursery greenhouse space to grow. From our understanding of the greenhouse market, nobody is taking new orders till 2024 to grow outside of their usual sort of book of business. Meaning that if you have a fire, you're, it's gonna take a year to two years to get seedlings. So you're not getting seedlings until 25, 26. That's a long time. And that's how we get reforestation debt where we simply have seen big fire year after big fire year after big fire year. So we, we uh, Silver Seed already grows millions of seedlings a year and we're doubling that uh, production capacity and then looking at how we make that model more and more scalable. So you've got the seedlings, you've got the seed. How do you get it out onto the landscape? Well, today you utilize heavy, uh, basically you utilize tree planters and they are superheroes. I, I've said this again and I'll, I'll, I'll go down saying it, but basically, uh, they they burn the caloric equivalent of running two marathons every day. So you picture like Michael Phelps or any swimmer or uh, Olympic athlete and what they eat for breakfast. These people are just trying to crush uh, calories just to keep it in their body. It's like, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty intense diet just to keep fueled. And what they're doing is they're carrying 40 pounds of trees and bags on their hips. They're doing wind sprints up and down mountains and then planting them with shovels. So what we've built with drone seed uh, is heavy lift drone swarms. And they drop a seed vessel uh, 90 to 180 days after a fire that's designed to boost the establishment rate of the seed. And what kills a seed, drying out, desiccation, or getting eaten, squirrels, birds, mice. Um, and we combine the seedlings that we grow at Silva Seed with uh, the seed vessels that we fly with heavy lift drone swarms and drop on the site. And uh, as we're successful, we then generate carbon offsets. And we use a third party um, climate action reserve to verify, to utilize their protocol, verify the offsets and build in a whole bunch of mechanisms uh, so that people can trust those offsets in a really significant way and forecast forward the tons of carbon removed over the next 100 years. So we can talk about that. You know, I love it intellectually. If somebody finds an inefficiency and improves upon it, I want to come back to the point you made about, hey, look, there's a lot of people who are planting these seeds by hand. And that's a tough job. And, you know, it's a tough job for a variety of reasons. And it leads to a lot of turnover. People burn out. They don't do it for long. Talk us a little bit through that. Well, let me just correct on, on terminology. We've got the heavy lift drone swarms that drop the seed vessels. 
And then we've got seedlings, uh, which are trees that have grown for uh, one to two years. So one way to visualize that is sort of the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, the very tiny tree, if you will, that's, mm. that's about a foot tall. And then to make it more confusing, we combine the two, both seed and seed vessels and seedlings into one project because seed vessels have advantages in not getting eaten and uh, not drying out and seedlings have advantages in the same um, same areas. And so uh, by combining the two, we have the best risk mitigation strategy, which is redundancy. Before you, was anyone thinking of the idea of automating the planting of seed, seedlings or anything like that? Yeah, in the conversations that, that I had, people alluded to in the 70s, um, helicopters. Uh, there were a lot of pilots coming from Vietnam and the conflict. Uh, there, were, there were people who were thinking about how do we use this new technology for good? And so people would come up with tree machine guns or could we bomb trees? Um, and these, the, this is a very like sort of like, Rawr, like, I don't know how to describe, like a very like uh, force driven metaphor. Um, and so, so some folks had tried that and, and the, the issues with sort of bombing trees was that there was not enough precision location. And so C-17 transport planes are flying and sort of think about like sort of dropping out these seedlings grown for a year or two. They've got a little cone, kind of like the tip of a rocket. And then they're kind of landing with the force of gravity and they were landing all over the place. Um, roads existing, you know, in the limbs of existing trees, lakes, et cetera. There just wasn't that precision location. Um, also dropping trees six feet off the back of a truck will drop their survival and establishment rates, double digit percentages. So you're spending a year or more growing a seedling in a nursery. It makes that impact all of a sudden its survival rate just plummets. And it's a lot of, that's a lot of wasted seedlings. Um, trees aren't used to the sh that shock. Um, the tree machine gun, Again, precision location was an issue. So that's really what drones can come in in a big way. And that was one of the things that was identified in those early conversations um, was if you can put the trees where they'll have the, the seed vessels, where they'll have the highest probability of establishment and survival, that's, that's a better use of the scarce resource seed. Um, and that's what tree planters do in the field is they function as you know a uh, high high powered AI basically saying like I can identify the difference between soil and what what, what is a microsite. Um, so what we do with heavy lift drone swarms is we'll do a first pass with um, a small a smaller aircraft, a smaller drone. Um, it's uh, carrying a lidar sensor, which is a laser um, that shoots out 100 or 800,000 points per second, bounces back, creates a 3D terrain map of the environment. And then we're able to, in the second step of three, um, remove all of the obstacles and tell the drones pre-program routes in which the drones will avoid any existing stands of trees, respect the contours of hills. Um, and then also because we've taken a bunch of um, high-res imagery on many wavelengths, um, we're able to then at about a third of an acre scale, remove out all of the areas that are like, you know, would be obvious to us, but gravel roads, uh, lakes, um, any rock faces, any existing vegetation like blackberries or scotch broom or things. And um, then avoid those areas and drop the steep vessels only where there's high probability of establishment. And the last step is the step that everybody is super gung ho and excited about, which is two trucks, two trailers come out to site and there's a person on the computer uh, and they are 
launching all of the aircraft. We fly two to five aircraft at a time. Um, they're big aircraft, about eight feet in diameter. They carry a 57 pound payload each, and then they come back and land. And there's a pilot who can take control over any of the aircraft at any time if they see or hear anything they don't like, but they're flying in a pre-programmed way. And then it's a NASCAR pit crew or Formula One, if you prefer. Um, we, we get the batteries, we get the, the seed vessels, um, basically swapped out and back up in the air so that the aircraft are continuing to do as many acres per day as possible. So that's really kind of how we function on the, the drone side. Just to give people a little bit of a sense of efficiency gain. So on the one hand, you could have humans going planting those seedlings, they get tired, they need food, they can only cover so much of an area, they need to go uphill, it's all very difficult. Um, I don't know if your algorithm is better at, in comparison to humans, at identifying um, the right spots, but I'm guessing every single form of efficiency adds probably up to, to a nice number that summarizes everything. How much better are those drones than um, using individuals? Uh, average tree planter is an acre and a half to two acres a day um, is kind of where, where we would expect to see that fall or what how forestry companies think about it. Obviously results vary. Um, Aircraft are about six times more efficient than that as far as covering the acreage. It, you know, that's the sort of simple, tight answer. The, the more complex and nuanced is it very much depends. Um, the site complexity, how far the drones are flying, sites have really weird shapes. Um, so that can be, you know, there can be variation there. And then also like, what's the difference between a super flat landscape versus a very mountainous one can all of a sudden just cause the sort of acreage per day to plummet. Um, and so th those are all, all, all factors, but the, what it boils down to is that in the conversations I had with the, with, with foresters, the silvicultural community or reforesters, um, is drones fly. So they navigate that terrain faster. And that's really the appeal or the, uh, as long as it's got that precision location and there's that ability to navigate difficult terrain, um, in our area, in the, in the West of the United States, it's very much focused on. The, the mountains are massive, massive mountains. And that's where a lot of the trees are uh, because those are areas that couldn't be used for farmland or urban development or otherwise. And so that makes a ton of sense. Um, but navigating that terrain is very difficult. With flat areas, you can see something you know, very similar. Mud, uh, churning it up is an ecological detriment. Uh, vehicles get stuck, things like that. So flying is still a um, big advantage. Um, same with, um, uh, basically swamp or uh, mangrove forests or otherwise, like being able to navigate tidal pools quickly can be a big advantage. So all of those things, uh, flying is an advantage for speed. And then it's, and then it's boosting the establishment rate and survival, but then, that then is the probability game that we play. It's a little bit of an entrepreneur's dream to come up with a solution that's okay, reducing the complexity, but that is six times better than the previous solution that existed. Um, that is incredible. Now, there's a variety of problems that you must be thinking about, like, for example, the survival of the seeds. And that's why you have the seed vessels. It has a proprietary mix um, to ensure. Um, is, is there something that you can reveal around your thinking, what you've been done, what the greatest threats have been to the seeds once on the ground? I've heard squirrels are your enemies. Well, I love watching squirrels, but they're not helpful for reforestation. Uh, well, actually, there are in some ways. They are on the seed supply. Um, or we could talk about uh, squirrels, but um, for uh, for people who want to see this, Mark Rober, um, Team Trees, did a great video on us. He's uh, and also you know created a squirrel ninja course. 
Um, so that's, uh, you know, or uh, obstacle course uh, as, as preferred. Um, but basically the, for us, what we do is we boost the establishment rates by do, continuing to do iterative improvement on how do we how do we think about how the seed will beat different environmental factors? One of those, you know, the two biggest being what's going to eat it and how do we help it retain the most, most moisture so it doesn't dry out during those long dry periods we talked about. Um, and those are the two things that are most likely to kill, to kill seed. Um, for people thinking about the vessel, and then you know, I'd love to talk a lot more about silver seed and what it's up to, um, but the, the vessel itself is about the size of a hockey puck. Um, it's got super spicy pepper is one of the amendments that uh, we have revealed and um, publicly shared. So squirrels, mice, others have the same reaction that you or I might have, which is incredibly high. The scientific measurement of spiciness is a Scoville count. And so you can, you can go on YouTube and look at people eating incredibly high uh, ghost pepper, you know, Scoville count, ghost peppers or other things. And, um, and so similarly, um, the squirrels or mice would have the same reaction and it reduces the, um, the amount of predation. Um, results vary in the field. So for sites, what we are continually doing is um, publishing results uh, because you know, one of the answers is like how, like, how does it do? And I have the worst answer of that, which it completely depends. What's the quality of the soil? What were the weather conditions over the first couple of years? Um, what were the what are the predators? So the list goes on. Um, so we're the only uh, one in the space that publishes our results. We do it on about a two year lag, and um, that's really to give our our early adopters um, you know the the benefit of that experience. Um, but it, it starts to cover like well in this ecosystem and that ecosystem and give some of the nuance there about how we've you know kind of where we're at with the with the product development. Um, and then combining it with the seedlings that we grow at Silvaseed is, um, I mean, that's, the, that's the, the method that has been used for decades. And so that's how we get um, both the iterative improvement and continual for speed and for scale, while at the same time, making sure that we have that risk mitigation strategy redundancy and having both. And uh, those seedlings, um, we utilize uh, the superheroes to get those out to site. And so we combine those two. Um, so that's kind of how we how we're focused on the the evolution there. You know, I, I think, and, and happy for you to correct me on that. I think it was 2019 when you acquired Silver Seed. Is that right or was that wrong? Uh, April 2021. So very recently. 2021. So very yeah. recently. I have a terrible understanding of time. Things that happened two days ago or two years ago in my in my mind. And so for a young startup to acquire another company. Um, and that's the thing that caused the vertical integration. I mean, we have a lot of consulting types. They take apart case studies. They wonder, does it make sense to vertically integrate? Does it not? You know, what was the thinking behind that for you guys? Nothing happens without seed. Um, that was the thinking, which is that um, it's literally in drone seed's name. And uh, without that seed, it's not possible to make the seed vessels. And uh, so we look at that and very much... Um, there's been a preference in the past for orchard-based seed, um, bred through old school genetics um, to have trees that grow faster, taller, straighter. So you get no, more two by fours per acre. And the, we have the science related to climate change. The fires are going to increase. Uh, they're going to continue to increase, um, but we did not make the investments in increasing the quantity of orchards to accompany that. And it takes 20 to 40 years to spin up new orchards. 
So how do you get, how do you get the, where does the seed come from? Cause it's getting burned in those high severity fires. Um, and so it used to be that default, like, well, if I can't get my preferred seed, at least nature will take care of it. Well, that's, that's dropping off of a cliff as far as how much that's occurring. And so what we do is we've you know, expanded Silva Seed to be the largest private seed bank. And we do that by collecting seed from areas closest to where fires occur. And that's because and we, get, we get one of the questions often, which is like, oh, are you using, are you using native seed? I'm like, oh, it goes so much further than that. Um, we, we utilize seed that's closest to the, as possible to the fire because genetically it has the highest probability and we're playing that game of, uh, of survival and establishment. For example, take uh, Doug fir, ponderosa pine, any other of the other sort of very common species out there. They're close to the coast, they're genetically evolved to deal with salt. Uh, they're at sea level for oxygen in the air, um, and they're, they're they're more adapted to that ecosystem. Salt in the air, salt in the in the, in the soil. You can try and move that same species over to five thousand feet of elevation um, at the you know at the tree line on a mountain, and all of a sudden it's not adapted to that lower oxygen level, and it's it's not it's where's the salt? It's used to that, and so it's not going to grow as well. Um, and so we, we want to be utilizing the seed that is closest to the seed, uh, the, to, the, to the fire zone. And this is not, um, this is very much hardcore science, U.S. Forest Service backed, going back to the 1920s, updated in the 1970s, where these sort of seed zones are. And they are looking at it, it, where, where is the, kind of about the size of counties the seed zone is. Um, and they're looking at like sort of what are the features of this zone that make it unique and special compared to other zones around it. Um, and so that's that's how we think about that. Why seed is important is it's, it's boosting that establishment rate. You know, we, you hinted a little bit at your entrepreneurial journey and, you know, a lot of listeners will, will love to understand more about it. And so there's a whole range of questions around that. I mean, in, in some senses, what uh, sets you apart a little bit is that you didn't just start this out of nowhere. You have a track record in the industry. Um, you have a previous green company. And some of the conversations that we have are all about that it's very important to be in an industry enmeshed in conversations so that you are more effective at generating ideas. I mean, how important was your track record in creating this company? Taught me a lot of lessons, the first version, but it's something that I, I utilized a lot of, we, 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 as we go through life, we always stand on the shoulders of giants. And so my first venture, I was reading The Art of Start. Um, I was, uh, which is Guy Kawasaki. Um, I was looking at how to how, how to do this thing that was in the entrepreneurial space. The, I learned a lot of lessons. A lot of them were, were school of hard knock lessons. We screwed up a lot of things. Um, we made a lot of mistakes in the first venture. And so then went through Techstars. They taught us how to raise. And I had a lot of experience that was outside of sort of Techstars canon um, that assisted in that raise, raising of capital. Um, but again, I was, re I was still reading a ton of books. And sort of, so um, Hard Thing About Hard Things was great. Eric Rise um, uh, was the book I mentioned there um, was great. Uh, there was a pitch anything was helpful for us for us thinking about the psychology of pitching. Um, there's other, there's other books in that space that I found to be super helpful. And then also the peer and community at Techstars was really helpful to be able to sort of see, we were the least mature company in our cohort of nine, but having a cohort uh, for those who are in athletics that run or swim, it is way easier to run with a training partner or swim. I love swimming 
like in a lane next to people and racing them. That's what I've, you know, did from age six through college. Um, and so like very much like that community aspect, it's a friendly competition or a, um, a sort of day in and day out with others was important. So and for people, it's a, it's a lonely journey to go through that entrepreneurial journey. And so by getting access some, to some of the top thinking in books to some of the emotional and um, you know, personally motivating aspects of the community. Those things were really important. And then School of Hard Knocks, just having screwed it up a bunch um, was, was helpful. And then lastly, to that, to that sociology degree that we mentioned, um, it's a, that, that uh, I wanted to say, like for people who are like in, so, in sociology, psychology, other, other fields that feel softer, like product is a great place to focus because it's that curiosity, it's that intensity, it's that wanting to know more, wanting to understand the action, the like what goes into the thinking and processes and designing better systems that really makes great product managers, which is a whole field in tech. I wish I had known that at the time. Um, I did not know that at all. Um, and so, uh, yeah, um, so that was something that I could, I could point people to, you know, Lean Startup is a, is a great resource to get started in that field and to be thinking about what problems uh, interest, interest, uh, individual, you know, you as a listener, as an individual and how you might access those in a similar way, just go on LinkedIn, find everybody, you know, that can, will sit down and chat with you, uh, or talk to you on the phone about what, what they hate about their job or what makes their job difficult. And, uh, and then figure out how to make that better. And my, my strong, strong emphasis is I'm please focus on climate because it will be so important. Um, mission is a huge aspect of our company. We can talk about that if that's if that's something that's interesting. You know, you did mention you had a couple of uh, you know bad ideas, as everyone will have. In fact, there's you know there's a theory in in psychology about what makes creativity and what makes good solutions. And it, often one of the theories is that it's about the volume of ideas is correlated with success more than any one quality. So um, now tell us about some of these bad ideas. We want to know. <laughs> this is one of my favorite things. To, um, I, I mean, we. I had this idea that um, in the US, and, and I've, I've spent 10 years abroad, so uh, I, I understand this, this may or may not be universal, but often in my experience, it has been. Um, I shouldn't say that. There's actually some great gas stations in, 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 in Europe and um, South America, but um, I digress. I was looking at US gas stations. A lot of it is terrible food, people who are not excited to be working their job, and are, uh, you know, and it shows um, bathrooms that are often just so, so dirty. And, um, and I was looking at this and, you know, this is 2016 and I'm thinking it takes 40 minutes to charge up an electric vehicle. Who wants to spend 40 minutes in like a gas station type environment or, or something? And I was like, and I was like, ah, oh, like what, what, what would this look like? It would look like you pull in and you hook up your car and then you go inside and it's super clean. You've got a space to work. The food is healthy. Maybe they make it in front of you. And, um, and, and fascinatingly, um, I, you know, first of all, what's the cost of creating a minimal viable prototype for that? That is very expensive. The charging infrastructure, the, um, the, the other aspects of this. But then I talked about people, you know, that's, that's one way to think about it is can I create something that will test this theory or idea that I have that this is a pain point and a problem. Um, and then the other is um, let's talk to people about what they do at gas stations. Like how do I create a whole questionnaire and what I, I did this and then I learned 
people have a secret gas station food. About 80% of people I know have like a secret gas station food that is completely and utterly terrible for them. And they only allow the, to, themselves to have it when they are traveling on a long distance road trip. Long distances may vary here in this equation. Um, but for some people it's the, like there are some people who love those hot dogs that have been spinning on the racks for like hours upon hours. Orange, orange Tic Tacs is a big one. Um, Pringles, potato chips. So like I was, I was, I did not have a favorite. I did not have a gas station, you know, secret gas station food. Uh, but I was just fascinated as a sociology undergrad to learn this and go, this is why gas stations, you know, they make most of their money, not on the gas, but on the food, but this is why they stock such terrible food for you. Um, and so it was, it was interesting to learn that some of my vision around this was going to be problematic. And then also like, how do you create, how do you do a minimum viable prototype of this? Like, and, and then I was like, and then also like, why wouldn't this just be Starbucks? Why wouldn't this be like, you're we were literally talking about a Starbucks, like Starbucks corporate makes a decision that they were like gonna have Tesla chargers in the parking lot. All of a sudden my business model is over and they have a lot more money and a lot more people. And I, so I couldn't really justify to myself spending that time doing that. And, um, and that this was really the thing that would move the needle and making EVs more palatable people. Most people that, that own an EV will be charging at home. So this is really a long distance road trip type thing. And the competition was so severe if I was successful that it wouldn't make sense to head into that. And, and also from a mission perspective, like would this really move the needle? So you know, kind of consistently back to that. So that was one of those like ideas that that I had and was able to you know have a lot of people, friends and they like they go to gas stations. I was able to talk to them about that in a very like sociological way of like when you walk in, like what do you do or like you know what 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 do you think about the the quality of the food, etc. No, and, and just on that process of generating an idea, I mean, an interesting thing for you know a lot of listeners who might be considering um, coming up with their own ideas is that it may be difficult on the outside to understand perhaps how much it takes. Um, when you were generating ideas, what are we talking? These are 12 hour days, uh, 14 hour days. And once you were in the startup, that was an 18 hour day. What's the cost of being an entrepreneur in terms of time? The, depends on how much coffee is involved uh, the, uh, or tea. Um, the, um, I think, it's hard to put a cost on the time, but it's something that, um, I mean, the stats on just how much time we spend tying our shoes in our life or uh, you know, standing in front of the mirror or just consuming food, um, all, of those, all of those stats at the end added up are mind boggling. Um, but at the same time, like what's the, what's the value you get out of them is what I, was on, what I tie it back to. And I think this is where I, I tie it back to mission, which is for me, I don't want to look back and, and climate change, climate change is the, is, is the missile that's already impacted. It's our, it's worst, worst effects are already happening. And I don't want to look back and say, I could have done more to mitigate the worst effects of this disaster. That's the like negative that, that comes to me and what motivates me and gets me to spend that time. But the but the, what I would really encourage people to do is emphasize the positive. What's the solar punk future? What is the bright, shiny, happy future that we can have if we fight for it and we work for it? And uh, yeah, I think Ministry for the Future is a great resource for that. Kim Stanley Robinson book. Um, the first third is dark. The second third is very bright. But like the future that I want is that uh, 
<laughs> we have we have heavy lift drone swarms that are reforesting far more than we lose each year that that we think about the watershed or the seed zones that I mentioned as more of utilities that are providing ecosystem services. And it's the increase in inch acres of water. It's the removal of carbon. And then beyond our field, like I want to take a blimp ride across the Atlantic. I, you know, instead of having a, a you know, polluting air traffic, I want to take a sort of racing yacht passenger ship instead of a, an airplane. And I want to have Wi-Fi and I want to watch dolphins in the sunset on a two day trip across the Atlantic for a business meeting. Um, I want to have leather made out of mushrooms. Uh, I want to have like a, 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 I do not want people to breathe in all of the pollution from uh, hydrocarbons. And I want people to be, you know, all of those things like that is, that is a literal bright future. Um, I want all of those things and I want a much bigger connection between how we spend human capital thought time that's motivated by dollars and ecosystems which move carbon around and other nutrients. And how do we make those two gears that, that sort of spin harmoniously together? So those, that's the bright future that I think people can focus on. People, in my experience, we have the, the co-founder of Tesla on our board, Mark Tarpening, there's two communities that really make Tesla's brand powerful. The people like me who do not care about the look, aesthetic or driving experience of the car, I drive a 2006 Prius, but they care deeply about where the fuel source comes from and how that impacts other people. And gearheads who want a car that goes faster than a Lamborghini and zero to 60 is like, is, is unparalleled. You put those two communities together, that bright sort of future and that less impact, and it makes a very powerful brand. And so very similarly, like people are very excited about the scalability of reforestation with heavy lift drone swarms. And that is awesome. And we will continue to build and grow in that space. We're also building out the, what is the realistic, the pragmatic approach that what is the impact? Where does the fuel come from? How does the whole supply chain work and changing that in the industry? And so that is, that is where we have a focus. And that's where I'd encourage people to focus their efforts is focus less on the wall that we're driving towards and focus more on the very bright thing that's super cool and awesome and fun. And they're excited to tell their, their kids, their friends, other things, because that's what will keep people going. You know, one of the things you, you mentioned, Grant, and for anyone is an MVP, and for anyone who's maybe thinking of uh, clean tech ideas, sometimes, like the other idea you were exploring, the cost and price of an MVP is just too high. It's very difficult to go off and then test it. Um, how did you create an MVP to, to test your drone seat idea? Um, that's one of the alluring things about drones is that when you can start small, um, that you can build a pretty cost-effective uh, prototype. And, and then as you get much bigger, it gets much more expensive. Um, but that's really where we started. And that's one of the alluring things about software is that it's, it's, it's coffee and a keyboard and you can make something that's world-changing. Um, with the hard tech and sciences, there, there is, there's always that cost of like, how do how do we fund that research? How do we approach that? So for people looking for that, I mean, there's, there's often, a, there's pattern matching that occurs. If people are coming from the business side, figure out what's a source of heart of science. Uh, where is the tech gonna come from? And is it in physical? Is it in software? Is it in, in another, another space? 
and often, you know, one of the things that made Stanford uh, so successful, uh, others that are the, like LSE that in the space is that to the extent that you're able to combine that business with the science, the CEO, the CTO, um, find people that are working on the science side and figure out if you can add value on the business or vice versa. Um, and, and then there's with Angela syndicates, we were one of the first that was really, uh, it was stigmatized at the time, but we looked at it very much as a long tail, uh, for people familiar with that term, or just a, a very large pool of capital of people who could write five to 10 K checks. Historically, that wasn't very useful. You need people who could write 25 to 50 K checks. Um, but with Angela syndicates, people can much, many more people can write five to 10 K checks. And so then it was the trick was how do you combine those? And Angela syndicates did that. And all of a sudden that made it much more possible for a lot of people to raise capital in a very significant way that was useful for a company and get that sort of first prototype out the door. But, but it starts with what's the compelling product narrative of, of problem, solution, team, market size, competitive landscape in a pitch deck, in a narrative, in a business plan. And then it's great. Here's how we've demonstrated some proof that this narrative is, is accurate and then raise money and figure out how to build a bigger prototype. And I would, I would argue that it's, it, is, it is a difficult, difficult journey to raise that capital, but it is easier than it has been in the past. And that does not make it fun or easy, but it is significantly improved compared to historic, you know, where it's been over the last, uh, you know, the, the 90s looking backwards. So, and access has improved, still a ton of work to do there, um, but that is also improved. Uh, I mean, Grant, this is a great place to, you know, it's, it's an inspiring moment. And so I hope other people will walk away and think about your journey and learn the lessons from that. Um, important conversation. And uh, it was great speaking to you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And that's today's episode. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week.